So, so we're going to talk through Matthew chapter 12. Now, if you're just joining us, uh, first of all, welcome. I know that there are a handful of you here for the first time this morning, so we want to welcome you. Uh, we're working through the book of Matthew. Matthew's in the New Testament. It's one of the biographies of Jesus. And we started last uh, September, and we're just kind of slowly working our way through, uh, on in through this year into November and December probably is when we'll wrap up taking our time to look at the teachings of Jesus because we want to be followers of Jesus, not just believing the right things about him, but actually following him and even more so to know him, to know him personally. And so that's why we're taking this slow walk through the book of Matthew. Uh, if you want to get turned, if you brought your Bible with you or have your smartphones that, that have scripture on them, uh, feel free to turn to Matthew chapter 12. Before we get there to a very difficult passage in Matthew, I want to talk a little baseball. Because it is baseball season, and I know many of us love baseball. The Indians are playing well, and you know what? They are not yet mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. And in fact, they may even make it into May this year before being mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. So we're all excited about that. But when you talk Indians baseball, there is one year that for me was far more exciting than any other year of baseball and maybe any other year of Cleveland sports history in my lifetime, and that is the 1995 Indians. Love the 97 Indians too, but it all started in 95. And when you think about that batting order, and that's what made that team that batting order was so much fun. So let's, let's take a look, spend some quality God time here, reviewing the 1995 batting order. Um, so who led off? Everybody knows Kenny Lofton, number seven, led off. And, and all he had to do was put the ball in play. And he was at first, and then he'd steal second, while the second guy, who was Omar, was taking the first two pitches, regardless of where they were at. He wasn't that good of a hitter, but if he put it on the ground, somebody, you know, Kenny's on third base or maybe even scoring. Who was third? Carlos Baerga, batting third, very strong, um, third man. And then the mighty and powerful Albert Bell. Uh, don't call me Joey Bell. Um, batting cleanup. And I, I want to say there was a year where he led the league in like RBIs, home runs, and doubles, all the same. But I mean, just a, an incredible force. Number five man was, and don't show it yet, Eddie Murray. I already got that one pretty quick. That was the one that I got hung up on. Now, Eddie Murray, I mean, just, you know, baseball legend. And then we get into the scrubs, right? Like the lower part of the lineup, not very good, you, where you put your... your your, your lesser batters, like number six, Jim Tomey. I mean, you know, I mean, just could never get it done. Number seven was, isn't that crazy, Manny Ramirez. You know how many people would have loved to have had him bat cleanup? And he's our seventh guy, followed up by the scrub of the team because he only had 25 home runs. Paul Sorrento would have batted cleanup for a lot of places, but he was all right, man. And then finally, of course the legendary Sandy Alomar Jr. So, I mean, just for those of you who don't know baseball, that's an all-star team. I mean, we had an all-star team, and there was, there was a depth to that team. This is the only thing you guys are going to remember about today's sermon, a couple. Uh, but I mean, there, there was a depth to that team that if you were a pitcher, you couldn't pitch around anybody. Uh, you know, Hargrove could give people 
days off and it wasn't a big deal. And, and, and they're just so deep. Okay, let's make the move to Matthew 12. Jesus is describing a kind of depth here. Matthew 12 is a fairly complicated, the passage that we're going to read today is a fairly complicated one, but it all comes down to the thing behind the thing behind the thing, underneath it all, it's about depth. And, and what Jesus envisions is a kind of depth similar to that of the 95 Indians, where we're not talking about lightning in a bottle, like, oh, I had a good season or I had a good couple of weeks of following God. We're talking about a kind of depth and consistency that is very, very predictable. That's the kind of depth that I want in my walk with God. Because what we're going to read here is that there, there's a group of people called the Pharisees, and they were the religious leaders of the day. And they were so shallow spiritually that they were unable, and these were the, these were the, the leaders, they were unable to discern right from wrong, good from evil, up from down, left from right, God from Satan. Like they, they literally were so shallow spiritually that they couldn't tell when God was standing right before them. And there's a layer of presenting problems, things that you could identify as issues, but Jesus goes straight to the heart of the matter and he talks about us being like trees and, 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 and we, we, we get in, you know, we, we brings to mind because scripture talks often about the human heart being like a tree and it brings to mind the, the, this tree and, and you'll have a good tree, a quality tree has a root system that goes down as far as it does up. And there's this idea of this depth. And so when I think about following God, like, like let's believe for a minute that there is a God of the universe and he does want us to know him and he can invest in our lives and, and, and we can live with that kind of relationship. I want that kind of depth. I mean, I want my spiritual life to look like that. I want to be deep. I want to be predictable in the spiritual realm and consistent. I want God to be able to rely on me. And not only do I want to get the big things right, I want to be able to hear God in the small, subtle things. And, and, and so as we launch into this fairly difficult passage, I just want you to upfront get the idea that Jesus is going to talk about what it's really about, like underneath it all. Here's what it's about, and it's about depth of character and relationship and, and the kind of depth that produces consistency and peace and joy and comfort, and that's available to you. And if it is available, I want it. Okay, let's look at Matthew chapter 12. <coughs> and I'm going to start off at verse 22 here. Then they brought Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed them, healed him, so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? So there's a guy that can't speak and he can't see. And Jesus quickly assesses that it's demon activity. Now how he can tell that, I don't know, he's God, I'm not. Is that still a factor today in blindness? I don't know how that all works. But what the scripture tells us is that Jesus has assessed that this man is blind and, and has other disabilities, 
and he releases, he exercises this demon, and the man is now healed and cured. And there's two groups of people. The first say, could this be the son of David? Now, this phrase, son of David, we need to spend some time on because it's relevant to how this all fits together theologically. And so today we're going to talk about first some theology of the passage and then specifically how to apply it to our lives. Son of David was a loaded term in a Jewish context. And remember that we've said that Matthew was a book written by a Jew to a Jewish crowd, helping them understand what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. And so this phrase, son of David, here is a loaded kind of political religious phrase, very similar to the phrase today, hoodie. Now, you know, hoodie was just a sweatshirt six months ago. But now hoodie is associated with some very specific names, a very specific state, a court case, a lot of racial and politically charged. I mean, hoodie is now a loaded statement. And when you say the word hoodie, it gets your mind going, right? Son of David was the same way. When Matthew writes the word son of David here, this is a very specific theological term. And every Jew in the crowd would have understood that he's referring to the Messiah, that people were beginning to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So David was the second king of Israel, but the first great king of Israel. And he established them as a, as a powerful nation. Well, then the people rebelled against God, and God kind of shipped them off to exile. But he always promised, there will be another son of David from the bloodline of David, and he will come, and he will rebuild this kingdom and make you into an eternal kingdom. So that word there, son of David, was a direct reference to people are beginning to believe that this is the man who is going to save Israel and make it a great nation. This is the Messiah. Now, this also tells us about Jewish expectations. Most Christians, I don't think, could properly identify why was Jesus killed. Jesus was primarily killed, like the historical reason, was because he did not meet their expectations for what the Savior should do. The Savior, the Son of David, is supposed to save them from the Roman oppression and establish an earthly kingdom, but that's not what Jesus was about. Let's move on. We're going to see this develop. I, I, actually, I guess I have a Bible. <laughs> I can't read unless you flip the slide. Um, but when the Pharisees heard this, so one group of people, they see this amazing miracle. They're excited about it. This guy is from God. But when the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, another name for Satan, the prince of demons, that this man drives out demons. So they're accusing Jesus of being from Satan. Now let me set up shop here for a minute. And I want to talk to specifically those of you who are following Jesus and engaged in the work of God's kingdom. And for those of you who aren't there yet, you can kind of overhear this. So we engage in work for God's kingdom because we follow Jesus. That's what he did, so that's what we do. Jesus is God in the flesh. Everything he did was good and pure and loving and kind. He didn't have to do any of it. He chose to. He didn't have to leave the comforts of heaven to come down here to the earth to endure the things that he did, but he did it for people. 
While he's doing these things for people, he is accused by his own people group of being in league with Satan, if not being Satan himself. Do you think that was hard to hear? Do you think those words were hurtful? Do you think that was frustrating? I mean, he loves these people. And he serves these people, and they are then turning around and saying, you are from Satan. These are the same group of people that would nail him to a cross, that would call for his life, that would mock him and spit on him and insult him. And while he was on the cross, he prayed for this group of people, God, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, here's how this is relevant. This is the way the servants of God, this is the way Jesus was treated, and so naturally we should then expect that this is the way we are going to be treated when we try to serve God because that's what happens. And so when we're frustrated and when we're hurt, notice, I mean, Jesus could have said, I don't need this. Jesus could have proved himself right there. You think I'm Satan? No, I'm going to send you to hell right now, and you'll see him. I mean, he could have done that. Or he could have just said, I'm done, and disappeared, never to be heard from again, never dying for the sins of the world, never healing anyone else. He could have just washed his hands and said, I'm finished. I don't need this. Because if there's ever been a person that didn't need that, it's Jesus. But he was faithful to his calling. And so... As followers of Jesus, we can expect to be in situations when we're trying to serve God where things don't go the way we want them to go, where we're frustrated oftentimes by our own people. And I sit with so many people who, who are, have been hurt by the church and wounded by other followers of Jesus, and you kind of have a choice. You can take your ball and go home. I mean, I'm just not going to engage. I'm not going to serve. I don't want anything with organized religion anymore because I've been hurt too many times. And that's one option. But that's not the option that Jesus, who we follow, took. Um, Or we can choose, like our example, to put our head down, plow forward, be faithful to our purpose, because if not us, who? So when I read this passage... As much as anything else, this speaks to me because following Jesus is frustrating, just like being Jesus was frustrating. So it all fits together. Take it for what it's worth. Okay. Let me move on. Um, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, this is in verse 25, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by who do your exorcists drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, the first part of that response is Jesus just kind of engaging in some reasoning with them. Don't get hung up there. What I want you to see is that last thing. Um, Then, and by the way, the words are up there too, so that's why I point up there if you're new and don't know why I'm pointing to the sound booth. Um, (laughs) If it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God 
You know the way I said son of David was loaded? Put son of David next to kingdom of God and that's super loaded. Because the, Israel, the, the, the people of Israel were expecting that the kingdom of God was an earthly kingdom. But Jesus is saying, no, I am profoundly aware that there are two forces at work in this world. There is God and there is Satan. And God's kingdom is not about the Romans. God's kingdom is about defeating the darkness at work in the world. God's kingdom is about defeating Satan and the things that he does. Jesus is very aware that Satan has a plan for your life. And it's pretty specific. I mean, it, it weaves its way in. So, for instance, for instance, 1 Corinthians 7 says Satan has a plan to thwart your sex life if you're married. It's that specific. 1 Timothy 2 says if you're in church leadership, Satan has a plan to thwart your character, to destroy your character, to tear you down. There are schemes in your marriage and schemes in your leadership and in your parenting. I mean, you look at Scripture, Jesus sees these everywhere. Now, the Jews saw, there's the Romans, there's the Roman outpost, there's the problem, somebody fix this. Jesus saw deeper than that. No, there's greed, there's lust, there's, in, in the layer below that is Satan is at work trying to destroy God's people. And Jesus says, my kingdom is about tearing down Satan's and building up God. So what he's saying here is, you guys are expecting the son of David to do this. But when you see this happening, this is the real kingdom coming. So that's a little bit of what's going on right there. So there's some some theology 301 for you. If we move on, he goes on to say, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. More of Jesus explaining, listen, this kingdom thing is an active, aggressive, violent thing. It's real. It's about binding and it's about strength and it's about depth. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here he's starting to rebuke the Pharisees a little bit by not, you don't know what team I'm on? If you ain't with me, you are against me. Your decision about Jesus matters a big deal. I tell you that every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks words against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now that's kind of mysterious, but here's what I think we, we, we can conclude from this. When the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, He's changing our hearts. The Holy Spirit is at work in our life when we accept the work that God has done through Jesus, then the Holy Spirit comes into our life and begins to work on things. And so if we are so off that we would verbally accuse the work of God as being from Satan, not only is our heart so far off that there's just no God in us, but we're also potentially deceiving and leading other people astray by those things. I think what Jesus is saying, it is simply unforgivable 
when you are so far off spiritually that you cannot even tell this is from God and this is from Satan to the point where you're actually labeling things from God as being from Satan. And he's telling them you're in danger. He's not even saying that they've crossed that line yet, but he's saying you're on a path that leads to this. Now he's going to make the move to... Jesus is, is so amazing at this. He will take these presenting problems and answer with something that's kind of around the way, dealing with the real problem, the root of the problem. And this is very frustrating because the Pharisees are trying to argue one thing, and Jesus comes at them with something completely different. Here's what he says. He says, make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil, he's calling the religious leaders evil, say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words... You will be acquitted, and by your words, you will be condemned. Now, I'll tell you what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is not saying that the things that you do will get you to heaven, or the words that you say will get you to heaven. <clears throat> what he's saying here is that our words and our actions are so in line with the condition of our heart that you can look at the things that we say and the things that we do and accurately judge the heart of the person. And it's the heart that makes the faith decision that makes us right with God or not. So we're not looking for actions to justify things. We're saying our actions show us what's going on down deep. That's the word of Jesus. So we can look at our lives, at our attitudes, at the things we say and the things that we do and, and, and really be able to see what's going on down deep. And if we have a bad attitude, it means there's something down deep that's not right. And if we're not generous and if we're stingy and if we're judgmental and if we're irritable and if we're angry, those are, those are, those are our root system problem. And Jesus isn't like beating them down. He's saying, take this seriously. Jesus wants us to get this right. Jesus died so that we can get this right. So what I want to do is I want to take about 10 minutes here and, and try to apply some of this to our lives specifically because we can look at the exterior of things all day long. We can talk about demons and, and angels and actions and words all day long. But Jesus, if you boil it down, it comes down to having a root system like a tree and it comes down to bearing fruit because we all know, if we know anything about agriculture at all, you can't really tell by the outside of a tree and the trunk and the limbs, what's going on. You look at the leaves, and you look at the fruit, and that tells you whether things within the tree are right. And if there's a good root system, and it gets nourishment and sunshine and is well taken care of, it produces, and that's Jesus' word to us. So we need to look at our souls and say, what are the things that plant our souls deeply? What are the things that produce good fruit? Now, I guarantee in a Jewish crowd, the first place their minds would have went is Psalm 1. 
Every Jew in Jesus' day and every Jew that would have been reading Matthew for the first time would have had the Psalms memorized. And Psalm 1 talks very specifically about a tree bearing consistent fruit. So I want to read to you. I'm just going to use the screen. Psalm 1, their minds would have went here. I guarantee it. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. That's scripture. His delight is in the Bible. And he meditates on the Bible day and night, all the time, continually thinking about God's word. He is like what? A tree. It's planted by streams of water and it does what? It yields its fruit in season. It means not only is it bringing fruit, but it's predictable. It does what it's supposed to do when it's supposed to do it. Its leaves are vibrant. They don't wither. Whatever he does prosper. Now, let's just say that alone. Consistent in doing good things, strong and vibrant. What if that's on your tombstone? I mean, that's good enough for me. What if my whole life legacy was just, man, he was strong and vibrant and he, he was, was, was consistent and and did good things for people when he was supposed to. I mean, that's a life well lived. And when we think about our, our teacher who says you need to bear good fruit, and here we have the word of God which says this is how you bear good fruit. I think we need to pay attention to that. So what Psalm 1 clearly does is it tells us if you want to bear good fruit, you spend time in God's word. Now, real basic. NIV, NLT, every, every, every Bible is going to have a few letters here, and that's like a code word to tell you uh, what kind of a translation is it. So it's written from Greek. It has to come to English. If you look at the KJV, it's beautifully written, King James Version, beautifully written, hard to understand in English, in our day and time, in modern English. So these languages or these, these translations are different. I want to suggest if you're new to the Bible that you find an NIV or an NLT or you just get one of these in the back and take it home with you for free. It's yours. It's a gift. We'd love for you to have it. You've got to have a Bible that you can read. Secondly, don't underestimate the power of five to ten minutes a day. That's a half an hour to an hour a week. That's a couple to four hours a month and 40 hours a year, 20 to 40 hours a year of reading scripture. Don't, we always want to do the P90X thing where it's not about, you know, eliminating some calories and walking 15 minutes. No, I got to get in shape. I got to do P90X. I got to work myself until I rip my stomach muscles, you know, that kind of a thing. And we do the same with the Bible. I don't want five minutes a day. I got, you know, an hour and a half with a thick commentary that I can't understand. And that's, I'm going to start tomorrow right? Don't underestimate five to ten minutes a day. But, but what Scripture says here is that we have to, if you are not meditating on God's Word at all, Sunday morning's it. You're probably not gaining depth and bearing the kind of fruit that God would want from you. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing, just very, very practically, um, there's a story in, in Mark 9 and Luke 9. It's the same story. Um, so Jesus' disciples, there's this, there's this boy who is possessed by a demon. Another demon story. 
And Jesus has given his disciples authority and power to cast out demons, and they've been doing this for a while. But this particular demon, they can't, they can't exercise this demon. They can't get it out. And so Jesus comes down off the mountain, and they're like, oh, we can't figure this out. And he's like, get out of him. I don't want to see you again. Talking to this demon, it says, you know, shrieks, convulsions, this demon's gone. Like that. <clears throat> and his disciples say, well, why couldn't we do that? And he said, these kind come out only through prayer. And I don't want to talk about prayer right now because I want you to go out and exercise demons. I want to talk about prayer because when it comes to reading Scripture and prayer, you're talking about the two things that the Bible, more than any other thing, says you do these to gain depth, to build up your tree, to bear good fruit. And so I want to just very specifically, because I know that some of you don't have much of a prayer life, and I want you to have a prayer life because Jesus says we should. And if we follow Jesus, we have to not only believe it, we have to do it. So I'm going to walk you through this again. I know some of you have heard this like 20 times. Some of you are newer to Polaris and you haven't heard it at all. This is what I did. And, you know, I'm not just saying that I'm some giant. Um, far from it. But this helped me build toward a consistent prayer life. I went and I bought a dollar spiral notebook. We're talking when I was in high school. Spiral notebook. And I would write four letters, A-C-T-S, down the spiral notebook. Now, I've since added about a 10-minute time where I try to get my emotions in check. When I'm frustrated about something, this is very, very important because this can affect your whole prayer time if your emotions aren't in check. But I try to get my emotions in check by asking, what am I frustrated about? What am I scared about? Sometimes I'm just... You know, very, you know, I think about last year, there were times where I was very, very distant, very, very cold, and I would think, what's going on? What's going on? Well, Elijah has a fever, and I'm worried about that, and I'm worried about this, because if this happens, and, and at least I could take it all back to what is the thing that's got me bent? And not only did that prepare me to talk to God about it, but it freed my mind from the things that I was distancing myself from God and others through. Now, I know especially for you guys out there, for, for the men out there, this, this does not sound like manly stuff, okay, getting in touch with your emotions. So light something on fire while you're doing it. <laughs> like just burn something or, or do push-ups while you work through this. Uh, but it's an important part of getting your heart right with God. And then, and then for, um, for the A is adoration, and that means praise. And it's just a few lines. God, I, I, you know what? And I know that you start out, you're not very good at it. Um, and really, even those of us who may think we're good at it, compared to the God of the universe, you know, we're not very good at it. It's like having a five-year-old and a two-year-old, and the five-year-old thinks he's great at something, and the two-year-old looks, but, but you know what, compared to an adult. So compared to God, any of this, we're not any good, okay? So don't get into that trap of thinking that you're not good enough. But take a few lines and say, God, I was amazed at the daffodils this morning, how they just know when to pop up and, you know, whatever. There's always stuff going on to praise God for. Um, confession. I'm real good at filling up three lines of things that I've done wrong in the past day, okay? Uh, Thanksgiving is the T, and that's just, you know, things that you're thankful for. And, and, and it's a very good practice to scour your life and look for things that God is doing that you're thankful for. And then you close out with the S, the supplication, which is a big churchy word that means asking for stuff. And that's when we turn to our kind of Christmas grocery list of things that we really want to see God do in our life. 
So you work through that, and the whole thing takes like 20 minutes to a half an hour. And, and what happens is you really do start to kind of grow from that, and, and it expands, and you're doing it different times. Your car on the way to work, in the shower, things like that. But that's a great base to start from. Okay, I'm going to ask our friend Sandy Jenkins to come on up for a moment. And, and I, I just find it very helpful to hear from real people, not pastors. <coughs> um, Sandy has gone from um, where she was a couple years ago to having a very vibrant prayer life, walk with God. And I want her to just kind of talk through specifically what it was that she's done. So I've just asked her to come up and share. So Sandy, um, if you could kind of tell us where you were spiritually a few years ago and and what what happened that kind of triggered a greater desire for a prayer in your walk with God um, well I've always had I need to give you a mic that's um, my fault <laughs> um, I've always had you know some type of a prayer life um but when it got stronger and, and deeper for me is when we started the Isaiah 58 um, thing for our church. And um, I would just get in Isaiah 58 and just read that about helping the poor and the needy. And um, then from that, like, I would flip through and find different passages that I liked. And then one time I came upon um, Isaiah 61 and it reminded me of someone, so I just uh, let him know that um, when I read that, that I thought about him. It reminded me of him and his family. And um, I just, yeah, that's, okay. yeah. <coughs> so if you could be as specific as possible, and I know you, you've talked about, you know, Scripture becoming actually a part of your prayer time. Mm -hmm just as specifically as possible in terms of what you do and how long it takes time-wise. So if somebody out here knows the Our Father from a, you know, from a church background and that's pretty much their prayer life is mm -hmm. the Lord's Prayer, how would you walk them through specifically what that looks uh, like for you? Um, well, it varies for me, but I always do it at night. Um, during the school year, I usually start like at 10 o'clock. I work at the preschool, so I usually, I'm up until like 11 or 11.30. And, and you're busy uh, until then counting the money that you make from the preschool oh, yeah, job. Oh, yeah, because, boy, I'm bringing it in. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that, that's when it's quiet. That's when, you know, everything is behind me for the day. The kids are in bed. The dogs are content. And it's, it's quiet. And I just start there. And if someone has asked me to pray for something specific about them or if I have a need for myself, I have a concordance that I go through. And, um, and what's I, a concordance? It, it, is, it is a book. It's about, this, it's about as thick as my Bible. And it just has uh, words in it, like blessing, favor, the Lord, love, things like that, things that like issues that you might might deal with. And, and it tells and you where it in the Bible, yeah. It tells you the scripture, yeah. And um, one time, I'm kind of stuck in Isaiah 48, 9 right now, 
um, for many reasons, but it is, it is for favor, and, and I'm praying for favor right now. And it starts with, this is what the Lord says, in the, in the time of my favor, I will answer you, and in the day of my salvation, I will help you. And uh, I was telling Alex earlier, then throughout that, there are other issues in my life that just starting with that simple verse, the rest of Isaiah 48.9 covers about three other things in my life that I'm struggling with right now. And it just leads me, just that simple word of wanting favor and then finding the verse that I liked has just helped me tremendously. I'm kind of like stuck in park right now in Isaiah 48.9. So like start with Isaiah or the, one of the Psalms and... Mm -hmm. And, and just, just read it and kind of just, just what, what yeah. connects with you, and then you go from there. Yeah, and then if it reminds me of someone, like when I'm doing my devotions, if, if something in that reminds me of someone, then I'll just reread it again, and I'll put their name in there, or I'll use my, you know, if it's something that I need or, you know. Is yeah. it always this amazing, vibrant, refreshing, energizing thing, or is it also, is it both? And I haven't asked you this before, but is uh -huh. it, is there, are there times where it's work and dry and hard and then other times where it's like? Yeah, sometimes, yeah, sometimes <laughs> it's like, oh, boy, I better sit down and do this. And, you know, I said I would, so I have to. And then it's a, a lot of the times, most of the time where it's like, I'm glad to be sitting here. Yeah. And I'm glad it's it's all quiet and yeah i think it's very similar to like a, a physical discipline uh, yeah, there, it there is. are times where it's like yeah i don't want to do this but it's an important part mm -hmm. um, and then there are other times where it's the best thing okay so yeah. how is life different now just as specific as you can practically okay. speaking uh it used to be like this but now because of this my life is um i feel i have <coughs> a more uh, a peaceful confident um Quiet, like, uh, oh, what did I say before? A quiet, confident <laughs> peace. Can you rewind the first service? Yeah, uh, can we do this over? Um, um, I'm just, I am just confident that, you know, he's got my back. That, you know, I know I'm going to screw up. I know I'm going to mess up. And I know I'm going to make mistakes. But all I know is that I know that I know that I know he's got my mm -hmm. back. And when you think about the tree language, a tree with deep roots, the storms are going to come, but the deeply rooted tree, I mean, it makes yeah. sense that you'd have that confidence and that peace yeah. and that inner strength because that's what happens in, in agriculture with a deep root system. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know that it's going to come and it's going to happen and you're not going to like it, but it'll be, it'll be okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So anybody here, would, would you like to have that in life, that confidence, that fulfillment that sense of peace that god is absolutely for you and i mean i i would and that's that's how we get it okay thank mm -hmm. you so much sandy yeah, you're welcome buddy <coughs> and i absolutely appreciate knowing that you're out there praying for for polaris and for our leaders and for me specifically and my family and things like that i really um i really value that so okay bottom line Jesus is talking about underneath it all is what matters. There's all these presenting problems, whether it's, whether it's identifying Jesus and the work he's doing, whether it's demons and angels and, 
and life and words we say and, and things we do, but underneath it all, we're like a tree. And God is looking for a tree that bears fruit. And the fruit that we bear is in direct proportion to the root system, to what's going on down deep underneath it all. And so if we're going to follow Jesus and have the kind of results that he wants from us and that we all want from ourselves, it's really all about focusing on the daily things that take us deep with God. And fortunately, we have a God who has told us, you want to bear fruit? Here is what you do. So it's about taking these things, putting them into our lives on a daily and weekly and monthly and yearly basis. And remember that that apple seed is not putting out a lot of apples in the first couple months, is it? It takes years for strength. But it's got to happen on a regular basis, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, in season, out of season. And then you start to get to that level of strength and peace and calmness.